And welcome to episode two of the Awkward In-Between podcast. It's a podcast where we identify and explore some of the awkward in-betweens that we find ourselves within, whether that's in the spiritual space, the social space, political space, and we give ourselves permission to ask the questions uh, within that space that enable us to hopefully develop better skills in living in greater unity and harmony with ourselves and with others. Dave, how are you? Mate, that's beautiful. Love your work. (laughs) We didn't have that at the beginning of episode one, and well, episode uh, we probably one, we didn't should know have. where we were going. <laughs> Still making it up as we go along, but uh, we're not alone today. Actually, we've got our first guest for the podcast uh, joining us from somewhere in uh, Central America, uh, United States of America, I believe, uh, is Mr. Paul Coleman. How are you, mate? I'm good, yeah, and Dave, I've got to tell you, that really was beautifully put together, mate. I love that. Uh, lovely. Well, one of the things, because one of the things we touched on in episode one um, for us both with uh, Dave and I was this idea of us both coming from conservative evangelical backgrounds and the kind of awkward in-between space that that created for us as we kind of developed our own ideas and thinking and kind of moving beyond evangelicalism to something else, but not feeling comfortable to sit within, you know, the, the complete extreme opposite end, which is probably like atheism or nihilism or something along that and where we sit in that and I kind of thought that's probably a good segue then to kind of move into episode two where we touch a bit more on that awkward in between spiritual uh, space because obviously for yourself Paul um, for those that don't know you you're quite an accomplished Christian musician um, won some Dove Awards been nominated for Grammy and the fact those that are listening can't see Paul's face but he did just give the cringe oh Christian musician I don't want that <laughs> but in some respects that's probably you know, Wikipedia says that's what you're known for um, I know you're right I gotta accept it yeah, so give us a bit, a bit of your background. Um, you know, what, what, what's that space been like for you? How did you find yourself within the Christian music scene? Oof, which one of those? There's two questions there. Um, well, let me say this. I, um, I was born in England, and when I was seven, we moved to Australia. And when I – so when I was born up until when I was seven or eight, my dad was in the theatre, the musical theatre. And so he didn't. He became a Baptist minister when I was about eight, and we moved to Melbourne from Sydney. And so I grew up a pastor's kid until my dad retired a few years ago. Um, and for whatever reason, I can't explain it. I don't know why. Uh, and part of me wishes it hadn't happened because I was just—it's caused me so many, so much pain. Is that I just always heard church culture as an outsider. I always felt like I was listening like someone who wasn't in the club. And I remember reading about Jesus of Nazareth and being quite taken by him, but then feeling that there was this strange sort of this strange experience where I felt like uh, there was this big difference between him and a lot of the culture, church culture. And I didn't ask to see it that way. And I didn't try to see it that way. And I wasn't proud that I saw it that way and it caused so many issues, but I was always one of those kids that asked why. So while a lot of my friends are deconstructing, I never constructed. So I've really got nothing to tear down. I just never joined the club. And so what happened was I started, to answer the second part of your question, I started writing songs and I was playing pubs four or five nights a week and I wanted to start playing my own songs. So the songs that I started writing had to be catchy. And because I was in playing in pubs, even though uh, I was definitely a God follower, I wrote for the audience that I was singing to, which were people that, you know, don't want to be beaten over the head with something. And I don't even like lyrics like that. I like stuff that's 
uh, full of inference and full of metaphor and, and stories. And I was quite inspired by the teachings of Jesus. Um, sadly, that was a poor decision um, when trying to get my songs on Christian radio. <laughs> uh, because if you don't land the plane, particularly in America, they're not really interested. Um, so, but I did have some success because we, um, fortunately, I teamed up with these two legends, um, Grant Norsworthy and Phil Gordian, and they really were the propulsion behind me doing something. Um, so with my songs and their professionalism and energy, um, we got out there, but I think it didn't really stick massively because um, American Christians who listen and buy and produce and sell um, music, they really want it to be quite obvious. And I just could never really do that. So even though we had some success, I did find myself there and then suddenly was like, you know, I love these people. They're awesome, but I can't write for them. So that's as, as best an answer as I can give to, you know, be briefly answering what you what you ask. Yeah, and were there specific issues and things that kind of triggered, you know, for, for yourself that really made you go, you know, I just don't fit in or what, what, you, what this audience wants me to be, that's not who I am? Yeah, so I remember when we first came over and um, to America and we were playing at a big festival called Creation Festival, which is in Pennsylvania, like massive. And um, Mercy Me missed their flight, so we got bumped up to the main stage and I'll always be in debt to Delta Airlines for that. Um, but I, I, remember, I remember turning up to the festival a day early and just watching for a day watching the main stage and there was like every band came out and every band kind of did their thing and usually someone in the band, mostly like the lead singer at some point kind of gave some sort of biblical talk and there was a lot of sort of, um, you know, uh, sound bites of certainty about faith and everything and everyone, everyone kind of did the same thing and there was a band that sort of played um, like congregational music and then there was more bands and by the end of it i just felt like there was it, it was like eating a meal at a really sort of cheap um buffet where all nothing went together it was just sort of like it wasn't like a finally well-planned meal everyone kind of did their thing as irrespective of what was before which often happens at a festival so I just was, I literally, not to be all Spiro, I was praying, oh God, what do you want me to do here? And I thought, I must have been wrong, I thought I heard this voice that I've come to know is not me and most likely not my enemy sort of encouraged me, it could have been myself, to sort of sing for people that hadn't been sung to that day and that was all the people that weren't Christians or weren't really wanting to be just lambasted with the message and so we as the trio we did this killer set went for an hour it was just fun we just had fun wasn't that there was no content i just felt like let's go light on the content and we signed autographs for like three and a half hours and every second person said oh guys thank you i'm not a christian and i came along and i just needed a break and you guys were like a you know just like a fresh breeze and it was awesome and Anyway, a week later, my agent called me and said, well, you blew that opportunity at creation. I said, why is that? And he goes, well, they're not going to book you again. They said your content was lacking. And I was, I was so mad. 
I called the festival owner. <laughs> I thought, well, if they're not going to book me again, going out with smoke. And so I said, you have no idea who your audience is. I literally sat there for a whole day. None of those other people did. They just rocked it on their tour buses, got up, did their well-practiced routine, went back to their tour buses. And I sat there and I watched it and I prayed. And like I walked around the city, you know, like Paul, and I searched for the, where, where you know, what hasn't been happening? And then I did that, and the, 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 the proof of it was that nearly four hours of people coming up that, I said, so honestly, get stuffed. Like, really? Like, just get stuffed. And I think it was things like that where you felt like, and, and you know what, those people aren't bad people. They're, they're good people. They love God. God loves them. It's just that, that way of thinking, a very sort of insular way of thinking I find very unattractive and I think people, I think people generally find unattractive, but, and I think it might be dying bit by bit, but that was one of those things. Another one was when the trio was over and I released, um, I released a, a solo record on Impop, which was the Newsboys label at the time. And leading up to that record, I was um, traveling back and forth to Australia, back to America a lot. And so I had so many points that I was always bumped up to business class. And between Melbourne and Sydney, there was this gay couple of African-American guys. And one of the guys was sort of macho. The other guy was very effeminate. I sat down next to one of the guys. His name was Tal. And we were sitting and talking. And, we, you know, I'd been doing this back and forth for like nine months every three weeks. So I really had been getting this guy. And eventually that was when The Passion of the Christ was coming out. And I said, oh, are you going to watch it? And he said, oh, no, no, it's too violent. I said, yeah, but if you're gonna if you're gonna see anyone get the shit beaten out of them, it might as well be Jesus, you know, who's apparently never did anything wrong. Anyway, we were talking for a while, and and um, and he said, you know, what do you think God thinks about me? And I said, well, I said I've never spoken on, I've never been asked to speak on behalf of God, but if I was to guess, I would say he would say, you're my boy. Come up here, give me a hug. Let me let me whisper in your ear how much I love you because you're my kid, and so. I wrote a song and it started with, we all walk the same earth, we all breathe the same air, we all feel the same rain that falls, we all have the same call, we're all God's children after all. And the chorus was Gloria, all God's children sing Gloria. And it was the first song on that record that I did. And I co-wrote it with Jason Ingram, who's a big songwriter, Peter Furler from Newsboys and Reuben Morgan from Hillsong. And I thought, this has got to be a hit. Like, this has got to be a hit. And it went out and... 95% of the stations wouldn't play it because they said the line, we all have the same call, we're all God's children after all, was not biblical because I didn't realise that they were all Calvinists. And so it just completely ruined the record. And, th and that was it. It was over. And I, that made me, I was like, right, like, you know what? Screw you, lot. <laughs> I'm done with this. And then uh, an opportunity came up to join the Newsboys and I did that because I wanted to stay in music, but I had no idea of how to proceed because I just thought I am not the kind of person that can write this music. And funnily enough, the only song that I wrote in the Newsboys that did anything was a song called Something Beautiful and it doesn't mention God at all, you know. So um, I, I just think I had those experiences and they did make me angry and they did make me bitter and that's on me. But it was like I was coming up against a way of thinking that people had adopted, not the people themselves, but it was a way of thinking that I felt was, I understood how they got it. I understand who they, how they developed it. Um, 
But what I began to question was, is this actually the way Jesus of Nazareth actually thinks? And of course, like everybody else has asked that question, I got very arrogant thinking that I had all the answers about that, um, which of course I do, which is why you're interviewing me. That's right, um, of course. Yeah, no, we, we, of, we've laughed in the uh, our intro episode and a lot of the wrestling we've done about whether this is actually worth doing has been around the question of whether or not the world needs to hear from another middle-aged white guy. But clearly, in this instance, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. And that white guy is you. You kind of remind me, Paul... I don't know if you've seen um, earlier this year. Obviously, yeah, um, there was a movie that was released. Uh, was it the Through the Eyes of Tammy Faye? Right, um, what won a couple of Academy Awards? Oh, killer movie! Killer, yeah. As, a, as a I movie. hear your story, I kind of hear kind of this parallel between what I saw in that movie from you know from the young Tammy Faye. Um, that idea of somebody who's got this earnest heart that just wants to you know that has has had an experience, I guess, with with you know God, Jesus, whatever that may be, um, and and from that had this real desire. For for people and yet somehow found themselves running up against this this machine, this kind of institution that had developed that was, um, you know, had its own particular agenda and own particular way of doing things that just didn't gel. Did, like, did you watch that and resonate? Yeah, I did. That was an amazing movie. The only thing I would say, and I don't know if I'm being too hard on myself by saying this, but I think I'd rather be too hard on myself and God go, nah, you're better than that, than the other way around. But I think there was a certain time where I would have happily, I would have happily figured out how to write songs that way to do better, but I just couldn't. Like, I gave it a good shot. The second trio record, I tried to write American Christian music, and I gloriously failed. So I think that, I think that, I think that my integrity might have uh, taken a bit of a shot in that, in the sense that I did try. Like, I did try to do it. And yeah, there were experiences, but I don't want to sort of come across like this guy that, man, I really saw God the right way and I tried, but this machine knocked me back. No, I freaking, I freaking tried. Like I tried to be successful in that market. And I think my desire to be successful was more than my desire to love God. I'm sure of it. Or at least it was an unholy shandy of the two. Um, sort of uh, religious rocket fuel, if you like. So yeah, I think I think I definitely tried to do it that way. So I was, um, but I, I just I just failed. I just couldn't do it. Like I just I just couldn't even. I can't think that way. That's the problem. I can't I can't talk that way, and I can't think that way. And as I said, ever since I was a little kid, like my dad told me that when a new senior pastor came to his church group, apparently I was like thirteen, and he said hey, what's something that you would change about the church? And I said, well, why is the tennis court closed on Sunday? And he's like, well, it's the Lord's Day. And I'm like, well, you guys work on Sunday. You're telling me that a guy who's a businessman can't, you know, play tennis and be a Christian? Like, wouldn't it be great if there were guys out there playing tennis when the church service was on? At least they're there. Like, so what? I wasn't trying to be, like, I really wasn't trying to be rebellious. I no. just really wasn't. I just... I just didn't see it the same way. And I'm not saying I always saw it right, but I definitely never felt like I was in the club. And, th and then that was something we touched in our opening episode, this idea of there being particular questions that you almost felt like you didn't have permission to ask. And I think, you know, for, you know right. again, if I'm hearing you, you know, there's this question that you're asking out of complete curiosity. Hey, why can't we open up the tennis court on a Sunday? And it's almost shut down in a sense. You don't ask that question here. And I'm just wondering, like, were there other kind of topics or questions or things that you kind of learnt along the way that... We don't question that? 
Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember when I was fifteen and my, um, you know, in the youth group, and they were like, you know, that they split up. We're talking about spiritual breathing, and I'm like, what the hell are we talking about this for? Like, what is, what is this crap? Like, none of us even know each other, and we don't know you. Like, why don't we talk about our lives? Like, what are we spiritual breathing? We're fifteen. Like, what are you? <laughs> Let's talk about bullying. Let's talk about. Like, I just was like, what, what are we, what is this? And I, and I remember, you know, the youth group leaders, there was just everyone. I remember this one time I was like going down to this retreat and people were arguing and they go, guys, let's stop arguing. We're going to do ministry. And I said, this argument, if we don't resolve this, what's the point of anything we do? Like, what is the point? Didn't Jesus say, if you got a problem, work it out. But you, want to, you don't want to work it out because you want to go do ministry. And it's like, what the hell is ministry anyway? Like, what does that even mean? What What is this? This is more important. I want to come back to some of that stuff before we're done. But I, I'm keen to kind of get your impressions of the places and times when you and I have crossed paths over the years. I think the first time I remember actually sitting around having a chat to you would have been backstage at Sunfest in the some cow paddock in Boona. Uh, outside Brisbane when I was uh, I probably wasn't even running the festival at that stage I was maybe stage managing or something uh, I remember I think I met you I met Dave Jacques that same day and kind of caught up with him over the years a bit as well and uh, um, yeah like we bumped into each other over the years Sunfest um, obviously Easterfest I was there for 10 years and you were there I don't know probably average every second year I reckon but uh, what, what are your memories of those seasons because you're talking about you know how you tried to do the thing and you couldn't do the thing that the religious people wanted you to do and I've spent the last eight years unpacking seven or eight years unpacking that whole journey and trying to work out which parts of it were worth anything and what they were worth you know what I mean like because on the other side of that same industry uh, and I, I remember say, saying for 15 years of running Sunfest and Easterfest that I wasn't actually convinced that the existence of a Christian music industry was a good idea and yet I was one of the most influential individuals probably in that space in Australia for that 15 years gradually. How do you remember those years? And actually while you're thinking and answering, I'm just going to Crack open a beer because one of the things we love to do on this podcast is enjoy really delicious craft beer. So well, I, wish case, I, I wish I could pour you case, one, mate. But uh, in that case, I'm going to open one myself. Very good, very good. You Excellent. do that. You tell us what you're drinking. Uh, and we'll done. compare notes. So it's an, I, I'll tell you what I've got. I've got a uh, yeah. I've got a couple here today, which we may or may not get to. But I've got a uh, Helios, which is now ten minutes from where I live, uh, which is brilliant, and it's a Perseus White IPA. Uh, 7% alcohol. It's like an IPA based on wheat instead of malt. See, I like the fact that you've got a beer that's come with like a Grecian sounding name. Yeah, Helios yeah is... we've got a Medusa there beheaded on the can. Right, because so. obviously we're talking a lot of you know, spiritual and biblical kind of stuff and the you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, so we've got a Greek beer to fit in with the theme. See, we're, we're passing the, the test now, Paul. They'll have us in the church it's unbelie- with this beer. Unbelievable. It's not surprising though for... Shanky to turn up with some bougie beer. This is some bougie biblical-based beer. He's a bougie beer drinker. Um, I just want you to know that I have this extreme. I mean, I don't, you've probably never had what I'm drinking. It's pretty rare. Um, and it's only for certain tastes because it's quite a rare-tasting beer. 
It's called the Michelob Ultra. It, um, it looks I'm rare. Just... It looks like a special, special beer, mate. <laughs> where are you actually at the moment? Like, if, you, I know you're in the Nashville time zone, but where actually are you when we're speaking to you? Uh, I'm on a, I'm in the back lounge of a tour bus uh, drive between Chicago and Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, anyway, to answer your question, Shaky, I think on one level, um, because you are always busy and in business mode, um, there wasn't a lot of times where it was purely social. Um, secondly, I was, I was kind of um, dualistic in the sense that I was very ambitious to do well, but at the same time, I also just really loved people, but also because we didn't have a manager and the other guys, I was just like always kind of pushing, pushing really hard. And so I think that sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way a little bit because I was always pushing so hard because I just wanted to get somewhere and do something. Um, but our band was great. So we ended up, you know, we ended up going places because we were just a good band. Like the three of us would just had something magic together. And nothing I've ever done has been as good as that. We just had something magic together. When I look back on it, on the trio side of things, I wish I'd been a bit more relaxed and I wish I had been a little less personally ambitious. Um, but in terms of you, Shanky, you were always a good bloke. Like, you were always generous. You were always... Um, I felt like you're, you, you led with your heart and um, you were just a normal bloke. And I think you... I think you see past things with people. I think you're very gracious. So I always thought you were a good bloke. I always liked you. And I always, um, I always valued our conversations. In terms of the value, like, we're all going to do something. And in the end, life's about people. And so I think the value that you did, forget Christian music, forget music. Just think about um, putting people together. And people having a sense of community where they they under they, they they discover each other and the wonder of music and the wonder of God in in whatever way they experience that. Therefore, I think it was all worth it, and I think it was um, I think it made I think it made a lot of difference in people's lives. And people like me really appreciated all the unbelievable hard work you did because. We could turn up to a festival like that and hit so many people in a region and then we could end up doing a tour and have a thousand people a night come to us. And if we hadn't had that festival, we could never have done that, which helped propel us to the next level. And then we met all these bands like when we were at Sunfest, that's where we met Third Day and then they invited us to come on the road and we ended up doing 104 shows with them the next year and we signed to their record label and yeah. And then Jaxi became their front of house guy. And then we took Adam Lester with us and now he plays for Frampton. So all those things that you did, like there's it's um there's ripple effects to all these things. And um so yeah, I I think that I think you gave it everything you had and you were genuinely for the artists and you could tell that by the way we were looked after. I think the most significant time I had with you and your family was that time when they had the flood. You know, I was going to say. I think for me that was a night when everything changed, right? Like so, Damo, uh, two thousand eleven. You were you were there at some, at Easter Fest or not? In, in tour, no, I wasn't. That not was there, there, right? Okay, so we had Damo. Uh, what's your problem, mate? Yeah, we're. Pff, 
We had um, two days of perfect weather. And then at about 7 o'clock on the Saturday night, in the middle of main stage running, uh, this storm came over and absolutely smashed us. We got 100 mil, what's that, four inches for the, any Americans who might decide to ever listen to this, uh, of rain in 40 minutes. Uh, and our massive six-pole, 18-metre high entry tent took 50 tonne of water, mm. tore open, we evacuated 15,000 people and amongst other things, I was busy running around trying to manage some of those things and my family were not with me and I was not with them and uh, they ended up finding themselves, I think, sitting in our crew tent in the dark because all the power had gone out uh, and Paul hung out with my wife and my kids, I think, with one on each knee from the stories I've heard, mate. <laughs> Is it what, wife on one knee and kids yeah, on the yeah, other knee? Is that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, she, was, she was hanging around my neck. Because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the kids were, uh, in particular, Rach, um, which is my middle girl, my middle child, uh, was terrified because just months earlier we'd had this in- terrifying inland tsunami, they called it, come through Toowoomba and 20-odd people had died in that event in southeast Queensland and... And we were right. Weren't they separated the... you for a couple of days with that? Or yeah, something? yeah, that's right. We were separated for I think three or four days because I was coming back from yeah. the Sunshine Coast, got stranded in in Ipswich, basically not far from here actually, for that yep. four days when the rivers all everything was cut off. And so she was sitting there in the middle of this, remembering that, and was really quite traumatised. Uh, and I know, look, my wife. Uh, says what she thinks when she thinks it. She always has. And uh, I, I'm quite sure she has said this to your face, but she was convinced that Paul Coleman was every bit the diva up until that night and everything, to the point, I don't know if you remember this story, but she tells a story about how she was introduced to you earlier in that weekend. She knew perfectly well who you were, but was like, oh, Paul, okay, I don't know. Nice to meet you, Paul, because she just wanted to have a go at you. Uh, she never oh, yeah, felt that I... way ever again after that night, and I can only say thank you, mate, for being there for my family when I couldn't. I think a lot changed uh, that night. Right. <laughs> Paul, I've got that's a question. Right, I want to touch now on, you know, because we've talked about the experience of, I guess, yeah, particularly that kind of conservative, evangelical American Christian culture, which you know, definitely rubbed up against you. Um, but on the complete opposite side, you know, if you've got the don't want anything to do with God, in fact, you know, complete atheist. I, obviously, you're not sitting in that space yeah. either. I'm hearing you talking and there's still an idea for you that God is something very important and real. What does that space look like? like what is God? Who is God? How does that all wrestle and sit with you right now? Yeah, that's a good question, Damo. Uh, for me, I can't shake the fact that I see the world, when I look at it, I see it as someone created this. I, I can't shake that. Uh, I still hold on to that idea that there is a God, there is a creator, that all this has has order and purpose beyond um, sort of some sort of explosion or some random event. Uh, second to that, I taught comparative religion and ethics at the richest high school in Australia. I studied history. I've studied religion. I've read every religious book that any person, like the Quran, I've read the teachings of Buddha, I've read the Bible a number of times. I've studied all these other things like Scientology. Like, I mean, I've really, I'm someone that's kind of done a lot of reading and a lot of talking and I've traveled the world for 25 years and I'm sitting with Buddhists and Hindus and Jewish people and with everyone asking them all this stuff and then reading books. 
And I will say that I've never read anything that comes close to the, the to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth as as expressed through the oral tradition and translated for thousands of years. I've still never read anything that burns my heart like it. So, so I do believe it's not it's not impossible to believe that there was a historical person called Jesus of Nazareth. That's not a stretch. Um, but to believe that that person was God, that takes, you know, a, a step of faith, a leap of faith. I'm still holding on to that idea. And there's a book that I'm writing at the moment, a, a novel, and my main character said something as I wrote it, and I thought, geez, that's what I think, but I didn't know until a, until a fictional character said it. Because someone asked this character, you know, who's Jesus, and, uh, you know, give me the bottom line, and this character says... I have no problem believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but by him. But I don't know how he's the way, the truth, and life for everybody. So, for example, he had to figure out some way to do it for the people before him because they didn't talk about asking forgiveness for anyone dying off the from the cross. Um, and all those people in other countries that never even see white people um, I'm, I, the further I go on in life, I think that our version of salvation and our idea of who's right with God is the problem. Um, I find the God of a lot of evangelical Christians too small, and I find it very difficult. I find it very difficult to resonate with that, but they're my, they're my sort of core, core thinking right now. Um, but last thing I'll say is that I, I've been very influenced by the chapter in John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, religious leader of the Jewish people, and he says to him, you know, those who are led by the Spirit are like the wind. And the wind is unpredictable. I can tell you right now, I've never met anyone more predictable and less like the wind than an evangelical Christian. I've never met anyone less like the wind in my life. And so Jesus of Nazareth was unpredictable. And he never said the same thing twice, according to what we've read. Whereas religious people, they say the same thing all the time. And so I guess I'm, I've been trying to live my life for a long time, trying to hear God's voice rather than hear my own voice. And I've had nine years of therapy and a very good, conclusive, solid divorce. And so I'm less self-confident than I've ever been in my life. But I'm more trying to be led by that voice and... That voice doesn't always say pray. Sometimes that voice says don't pray. And that voice doesn't always say share my story. Often says shut up. Um, so I've been trying to be led by, by that voice. And I believe that to be God's voice. And it's not a masculine or a feminine voice. It's both. And it's not a white or a black voice. It's both. A big part of what we've been talking about in this awkward in-between space and the very name of our podcast it was a space that I guess I really fell deeply into post the demise of Easterfest. You know, that was kind of trigger for a fairly decent deconstruction-y midlife crisis uh, because the thing that my entire life, family, church, religion, faith, everything had been wrapped up in for 10 years uh, was done. Uh, and I was, you know, 42 or something and uh, with a very niche... Um, resume and and just really had no idea what going forward looked like at all 
And I've yeah. said before, like that, that awkward in-between space initially felt to me like something to get through and try and arrive on the other right. side of. Uh, and as we're doing this now, we've, we've already talked about the fact that in actual fact, we're increasingly feeling like maybe it's just a space it's better to get comfortable with and that uncertainty is not a bad thing to uh, be comfortable with. You know, there's a, a quote from another podcast that I really uh, listened heaps to during the last few years, uh, which said that uh, on the other side of certainty is not more certainty, but trust. And I kind of hear the same kind of sentiment in some of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, faith is, even faith is faith. And I think that people, people, a lot of people just desire certainty because they're so afraid. Um, and so that's why there's these lambasting statements and it particularly expresses itself in Christian culture over here. You know, you go to a, you go to a, a Christian concert, it's like one statement of certainty after the other. And I know all these people, I've got their phone numbers and I've toured with them for 20 years. I know their lives. I know who they are. They're good people. They really are. And their faith is genuine, but they're in a culture that, sort of one person start one ask one artist start speaking certainty and then if you don't speak the same way then your message is kind of a bit weak or if you know one female artist starts screaming about how she's a virgin every female artist has got to do that now now it's the purity culture now it's this and now it's that and then there's a song that comes out you know i believe in god the father i believe in jesus christ i believe in the resurrection i believe in that and you're like shit what am i going to write now like anything else is going to seem weak you know that guy's just said everything I could possibly say it's like telling I love you on a first date. Like, what do I do now? Um, so I think people crave that certainty um, because I think that, that that word you're using, the space in between, is where you have to have you have to have a relationship. You have to have something where it's sometimes it's your faith that's the only thing that keeps you going. You're not getting that certainty and and. Um, and I think that's a lot of the reason why people are so-called deconstructing. I think it's a healthy thing because they're because they were they bought the ticket of people saying that they bought that ticket and they're like, "Hang on a minute, like uh, hmm. this is this is not working." You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that triggered the idea of this podcast for for me before I pitched it to Damo was. Um, uh, a Facebook post I put up a couple of years ago in support of my daughter, who you know well and have supported through a flood crisis, uh, when she came out, uh, well, she had previously come out to us as a lesbian, and I put something up on Facebook that was pretty controversial in my conservative church circles. But I, I, that Facebook thing is interesting to me because, you know, I, I see all the stuff you post to Facebook. In fact, I was, I, I had a Quick look up today, just over the last couple of months, and uh, yeah. what's interesting, like I want to, I want to hear from you. Like we've had posts about is social media helpful for conversation. There were sixty-two comments on that one. Uh, a comment uh, uh, you posted a, a, a fairly lengthy quote uh, in the abortion space, challenging whether we are as passionate about aliens and the poor and and others. Uh, that had one hundred and sixty-five comments. Uh, I got well, well and truly dragged into the uh, conversation uh, around a post you'd put up around legislating what others do with their bodies. 180 comments. I think a good 10 of them were mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were good too. And a few of them were, were my wife's, of course. Uh, <laughs> she, 
she likes to cause trouble. Uh, we've had regulating male reproduction, uh, trauma, uh, a comment around the fact that you believe most people are good at heart. We've had uh, questions around wearing masks, uh, the Christian Plane concert recently, uh, uh, some thoughts around Will Smith, and also the, uh, this is as far as I've gone back, the Rob Bell book, What is the Bible? Um, now, now what, what's interesting though is I really, you very rarely actually take a position in any of those posts. It hasn't gone unnoticed by me that you very rarely actually take a position. You typically post somebody else's quote or you post a question and then you let the uh, wildfire burn. Uh, what, what, why do you do that? I'm one of those people that, you know, I require engagement to figure out what I think. And so I, uh, I have my own thoughts. Like, for example, Shanky, let's say, let's say I'm at your festival and I turn up and without talking to anyone, I probably could do a pretty good show. But that doesn't mean I won't walk up to you and say, hey, um, tell me about the demographic of the people out there. Um, tell me about, you know, like what, when you've advertised, where have you advertised? How many do you think of these people as city people? How many, how many people would be country people? How many of these people would have heard of my band before? Uh, how many of these people do you reckon would be attending a church building on a regular? Because the more I know, the better I'm going to be. It's not that I don't have my own mind. It's just that I've, I really value hearing what other people have to say. I find it very helpful for myself. And so I, I, people all accuse me of stirring the pot. That's not, it's actually not what I'm interested in. I'm not, a, I'm not that. I'm actually not that person. I don't like lighting a fire and then watching all the sparks. I actually want to know, I want to know what people think. And so I have a wide ra a range of friends on Facebook and a wide a range of friends. And now, no, I don't necessarily think social media is the best place, but it's a place. So that's often the reason why I'm posting those things is I'm thinking maybe someone's got something to say about this that's more well-read than me. But then I, I suddenly realised... You know, most people actually don't have the ability um, or the skill to read something and step outside their own frame of reference. They, it's, they just actually don't have the intellect, which sounds like an awful thing to say, but it's the same way as putting someone putting a, um, a building sketch in front of me and, and me being able to understand how to build it. I don't know how to do that. Or someone putting a, you know, a, a, a paragraph of Spanish in front of me. It's, it's just that there's a particular literary skill to be able to comprehend language and to look at an argument and step outside yourself and see what is going on. And I think that most people seem to not have that. I think that you make a really good point, which I think partly is the, the kind of the catalyst you know, for, for me personally as to why I see this podcast as something important because I totally agree that there is a lack of whether it's you know intelligence, as you say, just education in being able to have those conversations and thoughts that allow you to step outside yourself and, and understand you know positions of thinking outside. And one of the things that social media has done, the internet has done, as has thrown us all into spheres where you're no longer stuck within your own network of you know, you know, that positive feedback, Luke, where it's only yeah. other people that think like you around. You have to engage with people that think differently than you. And if that can't be done in a way that is 
respectful, intelligent, thoughtful, empathetic, it is going to lead to violence and hatred and all sorts of things, which mm. for me personally, I don't want to bring into the world. I, the world leads less, less of that shit than more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, this podcast is almost a way of being able to, well, how do we, how do we navigate this this time and this era that we're in in ways where at the same time I just want to kill over and go well I'll just agree with everything because I still want to have views and thoughts but I want to have those in a way that says okay I think this here it is tell me tell me something different to what I'm seeing but don't kill me in the process you know yeah, what yeah. I mean yeah you know there's this picture that I have um, on my in the favorites of my phone and it's called the eight forms of intelligence and there's things like linguistic is one of them, um, musical is one, spatial is one, kinesthetic is another one, uh, interpersonal. Um, there's all these forms of intelligence, like eight celebrated forms of intelligence. And mathematical, hypothetical is one of them. But at school, we say, if you can do that, you're smart. So I hate the word smart. I will never let, and I, I never let anyone get away with the word smart. I'm like, yeah, they're smart in what way? Because if you take a kinesthetic energy, like there's a rugby player, you know, you put that guy on the stock exchange floor, he's as dumb as a bag of hammers. But if you put the stock exchange guy in a scrum, he's as dumb as a bag of hammers. So one of them is literary intelligence, and literary intelligence is defined as having a thought and being able to say it well, and being able to reason through words. So... I think that we put too much pressure on people. Most people don't have that gift. They don't have that intelligence. I'd say I'd say seventy percent at least of people do not have that. So what? It's only one form of intelligence. But there's been oops, there's been so much emphasis put on how well people say it, and then often the people who say it really well aren't necessarily the most profound people to follow. So when it comes to social media, it's like it's also that literary intelligence. I can read something and respond to it in a way that shows that I have literary intelligence. Well, if most of the people don't have it, then that's what social media is. <laughs> and my yeah. question was, is this even is this even beneficial? It's yeah. been a great well, chat, mate. A really good chat. Great to see your face yeah. and catch up and share a virtual beer. And but uh, hey, I'll have to try and I hope you're yeah, in Nashville. Definitely. In uh, September when we're there, mate. Like it's a, I was going to get I you to take I, me out I for a craft beer, but maybe I need to take you out for a craft beer. <laughs> yeah, you can take me out. There's a there's a, a place called Shortway Brewery where you can try a whole lot of their different craft beers. Ah, and, they were um, talking. I have, I have two of their baseball hats, and I have a couple of their beers in my fridge. So I try to keep some for the, you know, for the connoisseurs um, around me, um, but. I don't know where I'll be in September, but I hope I'm around. Uh, well, my friend, it's very good to chat. Thank you for your time. And, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah, nice to chat with you, fellas. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. I do very much appreciate it. Uh, all good. Well, thank awesome, you for joining mate. us on the Awkward In Between.